instead of saying, okay, well, there's a quarry, the rock will break down over hundreds of millions of years. We say, okay, we're going to take crushed up rock and we're going to move it to the place where it's going to weather naturally very quickly, put it in agricultural environments, places where people are planting crops. And there in the fields, it will weather at speeds that are relevant with the problem of climate change. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. My great to wealth listeners, if you own and manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial capital gain taxes. One option that may help you solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches that are involved with being an active landlord. My friend Ray Druitt is a managing director with Bangerter Financial Services and his goal is to help you understand all of the rules associated with 1031 exchanges. To learn more, you may call him directly at 801-312-9482. Once again, it's 801-312-9482. Or you may visit his website at 1031.bangerterfinancial.com slash 1031guy. Please be sure to see disclosures in the show notes. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today, we're going to be hitting a very, very important topic, a topic that's so crucial But if you don't pay attention to it, one could argue the world will end, which is really around trying to pay attention to what's happening. What are we doing to the climate? And who better could be a person to bring on the show than somebody who's actually doing this day in and day out? His name is Peter Oliver. Peter is head of new markets at a company called Undo. And one of their missions in life is to help reduce carbon dioxide over billion tons of carbon dioxide using innovative technologies, using software, using all that good stuff that we're going to talk about during the show. Peter, without further ado, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, Peter, before we actually go into all the fun stuff that you do, why don't we talk about your journey a little bit? Help us understand one thing, the well, wealth and migrate to wealth. What does the term wealth mean yeah. to you? On a personal level, I associate wealth with freedom. I think my yeah. financial goals have always been about enabling the lifestyle that I want, and particularly a lifestyle that I think can impact the community I live in, whether it be my family or the people who live around me in a way that's positive, whether that's freedom and travel and material goods, right. but also your lack of stress and fulfillment and things like that. So obviously, I think there are financial outcomes that I want to hit, but I think mostly of cool. wealth as non-financial. Yeah, love that, man. And how are you doing? Part of my journey into climate is to search for that, right? I think I haven't always worked in in climate. I've worked in software and technology and entrepreneurship before this. And I think coming to terms with the climate crisis and being able to apply myself and you know my effort on a problem and challenge and opportunity that's so important provided me with a lot of hope and a lot of excitement and has been enormously beneficial to how I see the world and the way that I get to go about my life. It's much, much I love that. Fun. Peter, it's an interesting insight, and I would love to get your perspective on that. People intuitively would not connect. To so your background, you said tech, entrepreneur, and now in the climate, right? Usually, intuitively, these two worlds don't collide that one could argue that there's no space for technology. And I know we were talking offline about that stuff, so I would love to get that inside out because it's a good one, is that why climate? Why not go start another internet company? Yeah, so I mean, I think one thing is that 
you can look at the size of the opportunity and the problem and think this is what we absolutely have to do. I think another way to think about it is in the same way that I don't know when exactly the software is eating the world, you know, Maxim came out. There's a moment in which it became very clear that software would define the next whatever decade, 15 mm -hmm. years of what was happening in entrepreneurship and wealth creation and so on. And I think in 2019, I was reckoning both with kind of the hazards of climate change, but also with that, the scale of that opportunity. So I really think that we're changing from a world in which we're the kind of primary opportunities for wealth creation are in technology to one that are specifically software, to one that is more focused on hardware and particularly around, I think, climate and climate opportunities, whether that be energy, transportation, battery tech, like things, yeah. you know, thin, thin bio, et cetera. There are lots of really interesting opportunities. And I think the common narrative within them is that they tackle this massive problem of climate change. How do we deal with adaptation? How do we deal with next-gen energy development? How do we actually do these things? And so that is what spurred my change is both seeing mm. the size of the opportunity and the importance of the problem. And, and I think what I was saying, mentioning before is there's a way in which what happened in software in that there are initially companies that built software, and then there are companies that focused on building software for other people. And now everyone, every company meaningfully right. builds software. I think that's the way it will work in climate as well. So what we'll see is companies like ours, which initially focus on climate, will grow. But as we do, more companies will enter the space. It's positive. And eventually, every company will have a climate aspect or a climate viewpoint or a way in which climate either helps or hurts their bottom line. And that will happen over the course of the next 10 years. So being mm -hmm. early to that is an opportunity for me, but it's also, I think, an opportunity to help push things forward and impact this climate and some idea of like global wealth positively. Right. That completely makes sense to me, Peter. Peter, I think most of our listeners are not living under this rock, so they would understand the climate crisis. But just to be on the same page with the listeners, what is the climate crisis? Can you quantify that for us? I don't know if you have the numbers. I'm putting you probably on the spot here, and I don't know if you have those yeah. numbers handy. So, I mean, I think there are lots of aspects to climate change, and I can only speak to some of them. So I'm going to focus on specifically the carbon dioxide removal world and the metrics yeah. within that market. I think that doesn't mean that the other portions of the market, particularly things like conservation, things like equity, things like power generation, all those things are important, critical to success in climate. But I don't know nearly as much about them as other people. So I'll leave those aside. But basically, we're currently on track for a two centigrade degree or more change uh, increase in global average temperatures. And so we've got to figure out a way both to dramatically reduce our emissions, so cut emissions by 80 or 90 percent over the course of the next 20 years. And at the same time, there's the problem of all the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. And so that will continue to heat the atmosphere. And there's lots of CO2 already up there. So in order to avoid the worst effects of climate change, we need to remove about 10 billion tons. I want to take a few steps back before we take food yeah, further. Sure. So what role does carbon dioxide play in increasing that two degrees centigrade? Oh, sure. So carbon dioxide is probably the most important greenhouse gas. And its role is, is that um, greenhouse gases let when heat enters the basically the planet, the atmosphere of the planet, it gets trapped inside. And because it's difficult for the heat to radiate out from the planet, once there are higher levels of CO2 in the planet covering in the atmosphere, we end up with a situation in which global temperatures rise, right? So more CO2 equals a hotter climate. And basically, we've gone from atmospheric CO2 level of about 280, which was what it was 
before, say, 1900, roughly, all the way up to about 420, which is what it is now. So we've increased the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere very significantly as a result of burning coal and oil primarily. Got it. Is it, would it be fair to say it's really where the whole planet is becoming a greenhouse? You know, I'm sure every one of us has seen a greenhouse where the plants are kept inside to make sure that the right temperature is available and all that good stuff. Now what we're saying is the entire planet has the amount, because of the amount of carbon dioxide, the heat is retained more than what it should be or what it has been in the past. That's resulting in an increase of the temperature by two degrees, you said, right? Yeah, so right now we are at about 1 to 1.2 degrees C increase. That's kind of where we are relative to pre-industrial levels. But we're, based on the emissions that we have released thus far, we're on schedule for a about 2%, or I mean 2 degrees of heating. 2 degrees on top of 1.2 or 0.8 no, two, on top? 2 degrees right now. But it Got kind it. of really depends so much on our trajectory. And I think a lot of people will say, well, like we need CO2. Plants consume CO2. It's an important part of our planet's atmosphere. Absolutely right. The main issue is that there is a safe level and then there's how much we have now, which is just more, right? So we have more CO2 in our atmosphere. And then we have, you know, basically since humans came onto the planet, which just means that we haven't lived in an environment like this before. Just so that people can understand the impact of two degree rise in temperature, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it puts at risk and you can read this in the kind of UN's IPCC reports, but it puts at risk an enormous amount of kind of everything that we do in the way that we work, right? So whether it's shipping, whether it's power generation, whether it's sea level rise is correlated with both the sea being warmer and therefore being larger and also glaciers melting, more ice actually melting and being in the ocean, that drives Uh, sea level rise. So like we've got a lot of different issues, whether that be basics like sea level rise and increased kind of changes in weather increase. But you see places like India and Europe going through heat waves that otherwise wouldn't be nearly as bad as they are now. Yeah. Uh, You see more active hurricane seasons, you see more crop failures based on both flooding and drought. So you just see more kind of outcomes from putting more energy into the system and not letting it out. It's kind of a multivariate. They talk about climate change as a threat multiplier, and I think that's a fair way of looking at it. Basically, just makes everything a little bit more challenging. And sorry for asking this basic question. I have no idea how much everyone understands the gravity of the situation. So that's very, very helpful. So now let's talk about what's your solution to that. So we know the problem now. The problem is... There's a higher amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it seemed like you have a solution to that problem? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I think talking about things in terms of solutions, I don't think is the language I use. I think we can help contribute to, to resolving this problem. Okay. We're not going to necessarily solve climate change. It's a huge global problem, but we can do something that really helps. So okay. if you think about the goal being get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it Mm -hmm. someplace permanently. I can just talk through enhanced rock weathering if that's useful. The method with which our company, Undo, uses to to do our work is based on the natural rock weathering process, which is all over the world, as rain falls from the sky, it combines with CO2 in the air and reacts with rocks in the ground, right? So dissolved Mm -hmm. carbon dioxide in water is carbonic acid. When this acid touches basic rock, so most volcanic rock is basic rock. So one of the most common kinds of rock globally is basalt. So when carbonic acid falls on basic rock, you have an acid-base reaction, which captures carbon and locks it 
into a soluble solution, which then goes down to the ocean, it's captured permanently. So enhanced rock weathering speeds up the natural weathering process. Can you repeat the yeah. name of the process again? Enhanced? It's enhanced rock weathering is the name enhanced of what rock. we do. Okay. But the natural rock weathering process is ongoing and has gone on essentially since there was carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I'm going to repeat what I'm hearing because this is what you do. So you're, you're very adapted it, adept at it. So I want to make sure that I can simplify. What we're saying is the natural rock weathering processes, when the rainwater falls, it captures the carbon dioxide, it's absorbed in the rainwater, and that turns into carbonic acid. Is that what you said? So carbonic acid is actually dissolved carbon dioxide in water. Got it. Right? Thank and you. And so what happens is you're taking this reaction of carbonic acid, which is obviously an acid, and calcium and magnesium, which are in silicate rocks, so volcanic rocks, Got and it. the acid in the base form carbonates, and those dissolve in water and are then kind of entered the water cycle and eventually become things like lobster shells and mussel shells, you know, used by the parts of different animals in the ocean to make basically things that don't break down over time. Eventually, Love that. settle into... Thank yeah. you for describing that because that cycle was very important for me, at least, to understand and follow yeah, through. Yeah, so that's the natural rock weathering process, right? So okay. we're doing something that is unnatural and that we actually have a role of things that we do. But what we're leveraging is one of the oldest natural processes on Earth, break down the dissolution of rock. And so in order to accelerate this process and make it relevant on human timescales, we spread finely crushed rock on fields. And the mm -hmm. surface area of the rock, because it's so much larger, increases the contact with the rainwater and more reactions, faster reactions take place. And therefore, more carbon is taken out of the air on a basically on a faster timeline. So we just accelerate this natural process. And where so are you getting of, these rocks are natural or you're, these are made in labs? It's natural rock. The, the rock we use is a kind of silicate rock. We primarily use basalt, but you can use lots of different kinds of silicate rock. Their main characteristic that they share is that they have a lot of calcium and magnesium in them, and that represents their potential for capturing carbon. God, there are other ways God. in which you can do this, but this is kind of an easy way of doing this work. We use basalt, which is bedrock in a lot of places in the world. Our operations in the UK are tapping into readily available sources of basalt, which are used for things like aggregate production. So gravel production for, say, roadways, buildings, concrete, things like that. And we use part, portions, either byproducts of the process or crushed rock that they're crushing for us, which is just the fines, basically. I think from a process perspective, I understand that you're basically... Yeah you're sort of transporting the rock from wherever they were to a place where there were no rocks or not the quantity wasn't enough and you're increasing the surface area by spreading it in a powdered form. Is that yep. correct way of interpreting it? Yeah. So if you think about what we're doing as there are the volcanic soils of the world that people say, oh my gosh, volcanic soil is very productive, right? Yeah. What makes it really productive is it's highly mineral dense soil that is usually based on silicate rocks, right? Volcanic yeah. rock. And so instead of saying, okay, well, there's a quarry and, you know, the rock will break down over hundreds of millions of years, maybe longer, depends on how much it rains and so on. We say, okay, we're going to take crushed up rock and we're going to move it to the place where it's going to weather naturally very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we'll put it in agricultural environments, places where people are planting crops. And there in the fields, it will weather at speeds that are relevant to us and particularly relevant with the problem of climate change. Okay. What happens to the place where you're moving the rock from? So these are quarries that we're working with. So there are lots of quarries around both the UK and US, basically everywhere in the world for 
kind of context, the aggregate industry, the crushing up rock and moving it around industry globally is about a 40 gigaton. Oh, wow. Like, I had no idea. 40 billion tons a year industry. So it's one of the biggest things that we do. So when we talk about why enhanced rock weathering has a lot of potential and why it's a really interesting process, it's in no small part because we already have the infrastructure for it. There are so many quarries scattered around the world. There are millions of trucks to drive it around. We've got billions of hectares of fields that are already under cultivation. So what we're talking about when we're thinking about enhanced rock weathering is durable carbon removal scale using existing infrastructure. That all makes sense. Now, does the soil that the crushed rock that you're transporting to the new place, does that actually, and it seems like mostly it's agricultural land? Yes, it's agricultural land. Yep. Does it make the soil more fertile anyways, and it actually enhances the productivity of the soil? Yeah. So one of the great parts about enhanced rock weathering, and I don't want to make huge claims here because I think farmers deal with a lot of snake oil salesmen and are themselves running often very tight margin businesses. So the way that we think about it is this. There is an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence that putting down basalt on your field will help you, you know, it will increase yields and improve the quality of your soil and a bunch of other things, mediate pH, all these different co-benefits, right? However, most of the studies, the academic studies about those things are coming out right now. Hmm. And so we have internal study that suggests that you'll improve more than 10% on average. Got it. Right, which is great. Now, we can't go out and promise a farmer that their field will definitely, will 100% of the time increase yield. As we scale this work, we'll end up with a much bigger and better mm-hmm. data set and we'll be able to be more sure. But we would not do this if we were not sure that it would not harm the farmer's field and in all likelihood would benefit the farmer's field. This is a long record. People have a long record of doing this work in hopes of driving agronomic change, especially in environments like Brazil and other places where fertilizer was hard to come by. So when we look at the market and we think, you know, okay, fertilizer costs have in some places tripled over the course of the last 18 months. And we look at what needs to be done from a carbon perspective and also from kind of a fertilizer perspective, we think, okay, here's an opportunity for us to capture carbon and deliver micro and micronutrients to farmers who need them. So as we grow and get more developed, I will be able to say more concrete things. But what we see as co-benefits are healthier soil, improved pH, so it effectively acts as a either complement to or substitute for agricultural lime. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it adds micro and macronutrients to soil. So things like potassium, phosphorus, manganese, like a lot of things in soil that farmers right. at large scale apply you can get from these blocks. What's the business model here? So let's say I'm a farmer. Why would I buy a product? Would I buy a product? Or would it be no, so you don't, more yeah, of the... a farmer, you don't buy our product. Yeah. So farmers are effectively partners to us. And the farmers that we work with tend to be regenerative farmers or people that are interested in improving the quality of their soil. Sure. And consequently, their yields. We haven't had a hard time finding farmers to do this. This has been something that people have I've always, maybe not always wanted to do, but a lot of people have been interested in this work, but haven't been able to afford to do it. Sure. Farmers currently don't pay for the applications of basalt that we put down. Our business model is to sell the carbon that we remove to companies that are interested in pushing forward the carbon dioxide removal market. So leaders like Stripe, Amazon, Shopify, Microsoft, very large companies that are interested in either removing hard to abate emissions that based on 
the work that they do, or alternatively, drawing down their historical missions so that they can say, okay, we've actually taken care of our environmental footprint over time. Got it. You're essentially selling them carbon credits, right? That's exactly basically, right. You're taking care of the removal, and maybe I'm not using the right term, but you're taking care of the carbon removal and they are contributing towards that. And then you're telling them that because of their contributions, they removed X amount of carbon dioxide from the environment. That's exactly right. So we don't talk about them necessarily as carbon credits. We talk about them as carbon removals, but functionally it's a very similar concept, right? So instead of saying carbon credit can be more abstract, carbon removal says we removed X tons of carbon dioxide from the environment on your behalf. Got it. And how do you measure that? So the science is pretty clear. Enhancement weathering has a potential to do quite a lot of carbon removal from the atmosphere every year, something like 4 billion tons. And what we do is we basically are doing a measure and model approach. So we combine specific ways of measuring basically the amount of rock or the things that are in the rock that we put down in the fields and the field before we put the rock down. Then we put those, that information together and then we come back later and we can say, okay, how much of this rock was dissolved over time and consequently mm. how much carbon has been captured as part of that process. So we look at the rate which our crushed basalt breaks down and reacts with dissolved CO2 in soil pore water. We apply buffers that correspond with different amounts of conservative predictions of how much is then consequently released in different functions of of kind of the change, either whether it's carbon released from rivers or from oceans. We basically use a whole bunch of soil science. It's a pretty, is relatively developed market because of soil organic carbon and also agronomic trials and focused, obviously, globally being a major time, it's like obviously a huge portion of the global yeah. economy. So we can use a lot of the ways that people currently measure and the ways that the things that they measure to estimate how much carbon has been taken down from the atmosphere. That goes through a process by which verifiers look at that data and ensure that we're being forthright. And then we generate carbon credits based on that data. Got it. And Peter, are other people doing what you're doing, enhanced rock weathering, or you guys yeah. are? Yep. Yeah. We're one of the leaders in the space, but there are companies both in the US, in Europe, South America, India. There are players that are working on this. And I expect the industry to be both very large and relatively competitive in the near term. So it's is that, not out on the fringe of science. Got it. does a margin growing field. Is one company differentiated in the model than the other? Is it a different technology? What differentiates undo versus something else in, let's say, India or South America or U.S.? Is their approach is different? Are the models different? Or is just now at this point, you're at the goal there, we're serving the market, we're serving, but there's a lot of need. So just deploy the same technology in multiple places because one company or one individual can't cover everything. Yeah, I would say we're in a, almost a pre-competitive environment. The field is so small relative to the opportunity and the need, right? This is the kind of scale we're operating at right now. We put down just over 100,000 tons of crushed rock to date, which translates to about 25,000 tons of carbon removal certificates. So. Those are, you know, all that work on the front end, putting down the rock will generate about that much, 20 to 25,000 carbon dioxide removal credits. That's kind of gives you a scale of where we are in the market. And I think our competitors, either that size or smaller, right? And so when we're talking about a, a billion tons of removal, it's kind of a target in the kind of immediate term. And then 10 billion tons annually is a target by 2050. The level of growth from tens of thousands of tons to that size is really extraordinary. And so right. I think 
the primary role of us and our competitors in the market right now is to collaborate, share science, legitimize the field, build the understanding. I mean, so much of what we do, we're going into conversations and we're explaining what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it to the people that are eventually learning about this yeah. and eventually buy from us. So, you know, I think there are differences between an operating style and focus on different minerals and exact kind of execution, different types of monitoring. But I would say the primary goal for, for all of us right now is to grow and legitimize the field so that we can reach our collective goals. Awesome. Awesome. Peter, if somebody who's listening to the show right now is interested in being part of the mission or take advantage of it in terms of buying carbon credits or carbon removal points, or it could be treated as an investment opportunity, what are some of the potential ways they can get involved? So this is a really interesting, really good and a really interesting question. So I think at this point, the carbon dioxide removal community is primarily from an investment perspective, a equity opportunity. And you see this in the very large rounds that have been raised by people like Charm, Climeworks. We've raised VC back, we've raised rounds. I'm sorry, Peter, Peter you broke down there. Now. Can you repeat that one more time? Because oh. you, there was a little bit of snag on the internet. So I think at this point, in terms of where the market is, in terms of development, the primary opportunities for a lot of carbon dioxide removal as an investment in equity. That's what we see, you know, in terms of the funds that are coming out, how capital is being deployed. You see very large equity rounds coming from companies like Climeworks, Charm. We've raised venture venture capital um, to fund our work. And most companies in the space have, have done that as their primary way of kind of growing, scaling, and as a consequence, there are lots of climate tech funds and increasingly generalist DC funds that are looking into climate tech as an opportunity. It's a really important question because I think the next scale of growth for carbon dioxide removal is dependent on other funding, basically filling the funding gaps and filling in the capital stack. So whether that be loans, figuring out how debt, figuring out other financial vehicles that will allow people who are interested in supporting this work, bringing their capital and resources to the table. So we're starting to see more of that within institutional capital, which is very exciting and represents, at least in my mind, our, the opportunity to go from mm -hmm. where we are now, which is you know, a very small promising industry to actually reaching the kind of scale that we need to. So I would say you know, getting in the door now looks probably like becoming an LP and one of the credible venture funds that do climate, which is exciting work. I think the next levels are thinking about, one, how to start working with financial players that want to invest either from an asset perspective or debt perspective into the companies that are scaling in the CDR space, providing financing for that next stage of growth. And then I think beyond that, I think thinking about the carbon opportunities as it applies to the company and corporation that you work in, right? So I think there returning to the analogy before there was a time in which people would say okay there's a software company you know right. that's not us we're not going to build software but now people do that right people think okay cool you know i have a shoe brand but maybe we're going to have an e-commerce play i really think that that is what will happen with climate and that opportunities like enhanced rock weathering represent an opportunity for every company that has land or rock in its supply chain i think there's tons of financing work to be done there. I think that there essentially, I think every company that you know works with farms or works with quarries, works with aggregate, will eventually have some form of enhanced rock weathering, carbon credit generation as part of their business model. Got it. And Peter, I don't know if you know about much about the US market or not and how the tax code works here. 
Are there any tax incentives for people to invest in carbon credits? So tax incentives to invest in carbon credits, I would say at this point, no, there are not tax incentives to invest. What we're seeing with the IRA is a lot of investment in the direct air capture space, which is a specific kind of carbon dioxide removal. And that takes, if the government is even doing direct pay for purchases of carbon dioxide removal from specific kinds of carbon dioxide removal companies. So that is spurring the growth of, there's a bunch of companies that are working on what's called direct air capture. It's it's a specific kind of carbon dioxide removal technology in which you use some sort of engineering to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and capture it and turn it into concentrated carbon dioxide. And you'll see this, you know, in the news, Occidental and carbon engineering put together very enormous project. I think, in, I believe it's uh, in Louisiana. And then a company called Heirloom, which is a director capture company, has also received these major, major, major grants from the US government to really spin up that industry. Now, that represents a subsection of the overall carbon dioxide removal community. And, you know, we're working with people, and I think kind of a broader push to move from policy that exclusively focuses on direct air capture to broader support for carbon dioxide removal and other techniques within that community inside American policy, whether that be state or federal, but likely federal policy. So I suspect over the coming years, you'll see an expansion of that effort to foster this community, move from specifically direct air capture to things like enhanced rock weathering, ocean alkalinity enhancement, biomass management. There's lots of different ways of doing this work. And, you know, I'm hopeful and I expect there to be support at a governmental level for that kind of work. Doesn't mean that there are necessarily tax benefits to buying that carbon at this moment in time. Got it. Well, Peter, this has been amazing. I've made several pages of notes. This has been educational for me. I don't know much about the stuff that you do. I don't even know there was enhanced rock weathering as a process. So I learned a lot more than I knew 30, 40 minutes ago. So thank you again for spending time. People want to learn more about what you do, what Undo does and other ways they can help resolve, I'll use your word, contribute towards resolution of the impact on the climate. Where can they learn? What are the resources? Yeah, so our website is a great place to start for enhanced rock weathering. It's un-do.com. And there are some really, really thoughtful people in the space. Carbon 180, Carbon Plan are both kind of advocacy and policy organizations in the United States that are worth taking a look at to get a view of the landscape. And then for the broader kind of climate and CDR opportunity, I would recommend Climate Tech BC, which has a very valuable and kind of influential newsletter that goes out weekly. So there are lots of different ways to kind of get your hooks into the problem, think this through. But, you know, our website is a great place to start for enhanced rock weathering. Perfect. Well, Peter, thank you again for coming on the show. I know you're a busy man, but I appreciate almost an hour that you spend with me and the audience. Appreciate it, buddy. I really, really appreciate the opportunity and hope it's been useful. I'm sure it is. It is for me. I learned a lot. I'm hoping there's a lot more people who drew value out of that. Well, thank you again, Peter. And thank you for all the listeners who stayed till the end. This show is only possible because of you, your contribution, your support. And I would love to make sure that you stay engaged with us. And if there's any of these topics that you would like us to talk about more, you tell us and we'll bring the right guests to make sure that the topics that you really crave for, that you really want to listen that we're bringing those topics to you with the right speakers, with the right perspectives. Thank you all. Thank you, Peter. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care. My great to our listeners, it is possible that you could defer paying high tax bill by completing a 1031 exchange and invest your real estate capital gains into a qualified replacement property. 
My friend Ray DeWitt at Bangerter Financials is your single point of contact for 1031 exchanges and tax saving strategies. To learn more, call him at 801-312-9482. That's 801-312-9482. Or visit his website at 1031.bangerterfinancial.com forward slash 1031 guy. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.